My name is Rob Auchincloss, and this is the Holocene Podcast, where we seek knowledge from those creative, adventurous, and bright among us. These individuals are storytellers, entrepreneurs, athletes, designers, and everything else in between. It is my job as the host to take what they have each learned in their own lives and codify their knowledge so that you can use their lessons in your own life. This episode of the Holocene Podcast is sponsored by our first ever magazine, Holocene One. It is available for pre-order now and features stories from around the world on the future design, realities of humanity, and adventures to truly wild places. It features additions from a few people that have been on this podcast in particular, Chris Burkhardt, Alex Stroll, Wen Wenyi, Lauren Moores, and also new individuals like today's guest, Petra Knapp. Each iteration also features recommendations on some of the best gear, tech, and accessories out now, as well as some of the best restaurants, hotels, and locations around the globe, all tested by our team. This publication will always be limited to the first run, and that's not just issue one, that's all issues of the magazine. And we're offering anyone listening a 15% discount if they use the code PODCAST at checkout. Today, as mentioned, I am joined by Petra Knapp. Petra Knapp is a dynamic engineer, packaging expert, van dweller, space creator, and nature lover who is passionate about people and the planet. A solutions engineer by day, Petra experiments with designing her life around her values, personal evolution, and adaptation. She seeks authentic connections and deeper understanding of the world. And Petra is someone that I've become friends with over the past few years on different ideas and formulations and someone that I look forward to working with very soon on some upcoming projects. But we had a very wide-ranging conversation about many different topics and I hope you all enjoy this conversation between myself and Petra Knapp. Life is either an incredible adventure or it's nothing at all. Petra, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks, Rob. I'm super excited to be here. So I ask every single guest the exact same question uh, starting off, which is what is the first thing you think about when you wake up in the morning? Oh gosh, it depends a little on the morning for me, but um, I definitely like journal sometimes when I wake up and I like to ask myself like, like what's bringing me joy in the moments that I wake up um, and or uh, like how am I showing up today in like the best version of myself. And do you find that this is something that has improved over time? Like what, what was what was the catalyst that started this? Because you haven't always been doing this, right? Yeah, I mean, I think I got pretty into journaling regularly, especially I was living down in Baja, Mexico for a little while. So I felt like I had like these really beautifully expansive morning hours. Um, and I was journaling and doing just like a few different types of journaling exercises, I would say, in terms of like um, gratitude practice and uh, looking for abundance in life, et cetera. Um, and like in doing those, I sort of refined it down into like, what's the most effective thing I can ask myself in the mornings that um, allows me to kind of show up in, in my fullest expression or whatever, like however you want to say that um, each day, like, like what gets me to the mindset of being fully present. I, that's incredible. Um, and I think it's something that's become very common uh, for a lot of more forward thinking individuals to implement. Um, is there someone or some book or something that inspired this um, particularly for you? 
Um, I mean, I think I, I draw information from like so many different sources. And I think for me, like I had done a lot of meditation um, and I will still do that quite regularly in the mornings. And um, this is like a question that I felt like sort of came out of understanding a bunch of different types of research. Like there was, um, I don't remember the exact piece, but like something I was listening to, I think on a different podcast or reading about um, was basically like, what are the things that, um, and I did some work in like the hospice industry. I volunteered a lot in it when I was younger and in high school. And like, what do you want to do before you die? You know, like what do people remember when their time is getting to the end and what's the most important thing that they can be doing daily in their lives? And I think like that question answers, um, like when you answer that on a daily basis, you really get in touch with like, what are the most important things and the most meaningful things about living, you know? Yeah, it's a fin- fantastic example of memento mori. Um, but just kind of pausing you, pausing that train of thought for a second. So what prompted you to, volunteer in hospice care at that age i feel like that's not a typical a typical like traditional you know opportunity <laughs> i mean i think uh definitely my family my my sister was volunteering in it already like she sort of got into it because my mom showed up a ton in in like community service projects our whole lives um and so i think like we gravitated towards that especially as we were getting into high school and we were more like uh self-empowered to do our own sort of like service practices outside of school um and then yeah whatever my sister did I sort of like dipped my toes into and decided if I liked it or if I didn't and that was one of the um like ways of participating I felt like with different parts of our community that we wouldn't necessarily tap into like going to a senior home isn't really what like a high school or middle school is going to do normally but um I volunteered like a ton with the lions and, and just like those I think those community aspects of like understanding the different types of beliefs and behaviors and people in your community give you like better insight to what um, what's really meaningful in life, you know? Totally. I, I couldn't have said it better myself. And I unfortunately didn't have as many of those experiences. They were, they were open and available to me. But I think at the, when I was that age, I was just too focused on self, um, which is something that I realized when, as I got older. Um, but I think everyone kind of has their own journey in, in getting there. And it's really amazing for you that you had that opportunity and that kind of almost push to really just, just do that. Cause I'm sure at that age, understanding from such a, such an early point respectively that, you know, uh, you know, you get one shot at this, you might as well spend as much time as possible doing everything you can to forward your momentum. Right. Yeah. And I think too, it's funny, like, I look at my life now and I'm like, okay, like how can I kind of refine and focus on the things that truly matter to me and like align with what I would say my purpose is versus like having that breath that I did as a younger, a younger kid. I I tried like so many different things, I would say across like volunteering and sports and how I'm like participating in school and the student government and whatever else. And um, I think like those things allowed me to learn pretty early on, like experimenting a lot of different ways like that allowed me to kind of like slowly start to hone in on what my purpose is. Um, but I mean, I'm still, I'm still figuring it out. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I love that. And I think we're all figuring it out constantly. Right. Um, this, sure. this, this idea of always changing and always adapting and iterating, I think is, is super important. Um, 
and and I and I I look back at myself at that age, you know, if we're comparing like high school, going to college age, I thought there was a moment in my life where I'd figure it all out and they would just be set, you know. And then I came <laughs> to the understanding it's the opposite, actually, right? It's like you have to be always present and mindful, and things change, and that's a beautiful thing, right? Yeah, um, for sure. And going off more expansive, it always gets more expansive, and and I think something that you said I really want to expand on particularly is as you mentioned Baja um and so I I don't know you too well but I know you well enough to know that you have a really rad old adventure van and I think that's what you're using <laughs> down in Baja so do you want to kind of explain to the listeners like what your van is and what it's allowed you to do yeah totally I would love to um, so I have like a Mercedes T1 and it's a 310. So it's a pretty small little four cylinder van, but it's a original high roof and it was a volunteer fire truck in Germany. Um, and I guess I found it. <laughs> yeah, it's really fun. Um, I found it because I was like, my car had broken down and I was like, I'm getting a sprinter van no matter what. Cause I want to try this like kind of like free lifestyle of having the mobility and like being able to use that also as kind of a launch pad to generate um, some personal wealth and and get myself set up to where I never need to depend on anyone else. Um, and so, yeah, I found the van, I built it out. My dad helped me a bunch, um, but I was able to do like a bunch of the work or all of the work on it myself pretty much um, and or with help from friends and family. And then had a few different iterations on the build and eventually decided like we had been going down to this small town in Baja um, for a number of years to do wind sports. And, um, I wanted to try that, that road trip. I'm on my own. I've always been someone who like loves and feels like I like thrive energetically traveling. Um, and I think like doing the slow travel version, I took like a whole month going through every national park that I basically could on the way, um, while working remote, which was really fun and interesting. Um, and yeah, it was a beautiful experience. It definitely just like, I think validated like a lot of trust in myself um and I didn't run into any particularly crazy challenges with it my alternator went out and I was powered off solar for like all of southern Utah to Mexico actually um so I was just driving during the day but that's kind of what you do anyways in Mexico with all the clouds or yeah it was pretty funny um and and for people in their heads imagining like a modern sprinter van do you want to tell people like this is like it's from the 70s or 80s yeah mine's at 87 um it looks like it looks like kind of like a bulldog almost i would say it has like a really boxy nose and front um and then yeah it has like a pretty unique funky shape it's definitely like almost square body-esque um but in van form and yeah i i like look at it and i'm like i think it looks you know a little bit there's some lifted ones that are a little tougher but it's for a sprinter it's it's not like your normal luxury sprinter no yeah, I mean, but nothing wrong with the luxury sprinter. I think they all have their own. Oh, not stuff. at all. I mean, uh, I would take one of those too, but. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I feel I've, like I've been dreaming about building one of those, but that's a project for another day. Um, yeah, I mean, you should totally do it. I um, highly to. recommend. So to to kind of expand on, you know, you you mentioned something that I think is really important, which is, um, you know, creating that financial independence through also, you know, your own resources. Um, so off of that, how would you describe the work that you do now to your eight-year-old self? Oh my gosh. Um, well, my eight-year-old self was like, I was raised by two engineers. My parents met at an aerospace company. Um, and so I definitely was very aware of like 
semi what the work they were doing was. Um, but I have an engineering background. So right now I'm doing sales engineering, which is basically like a social version of talking technically to people and understanding their problems and helping them kind of create a problem solve with software and hardware. And then I also have like a few side businesses, um, one of them being like locally sourced food um, and another uh, basically leveraging my asset, AKA my house that I bought um, as an Airbnb to kind of generate some income and or a long-term rental. That's amazing. And and for people that don't know, you are based in like the Portland, Oregon Gorge area. I don't know what there's. Yeah. Yeah. That span. Yeah. The Gorge is a good description. The I'm Gorge. Like an hour perfect. east of Portland. And um, how do you find balancing? Because you work corporate for your like main day job. Yes. Yeah. I'm working for a startup now. I worked for Nike for a long time. And then I worked for an aerospace company that was a subsidiary of Boeing before that. Um, but yeah, I have a nine to five job, you know, and now it's fully remote, which is awesome. Great. But yeah, balancing that with van life, uh, I definitely leverage like the co-working spaces and I have a bunch of friends that I co-work with regularly. Um, that makes it so much fun, you know, to just, to be able to like feel that college vibe of going to the library to study with your your good (laughs) good friends and like have that support system constantly there on the daily is epic. Um, so what was it like working for Nike? Um, I've, I've had a few friends work there. I've met few people that worked there. Um, I hear many different, uh, reviews, so to speak, of people really loving it or people either not so much enjoying it. And I think you if I remember correctly, you were working on sustainable packaging or something. Yeah, totally. Uh, I was a sustainable packaging engineer there, um, which was like a pretty specific niche, um, I loved it. I met so many awesome people and I still um, connect with quite a few of them regularly for sure. Um, the sustainability space when I got there was like a really fun place to to meet and connect and just like understand um, our specific like large scale, uh, I would say fashion brand systems um, and wastes and how we can kind of move towards a, a more, I don't know, like a less impactful version of, of creating stuff at volume like that, you know? Absolutely. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I, I think like I loved so many people that I worked with. Um, I had some challenging things with like who I was managed by, et cetera, there I felt like, um, and I wanted to get into the startup world. So that's kind of like where Nike has that sort of culture underlyingly. Um, they try to like maintain that that kind of startup feel in some of their departments, et cetera. And um, yeah, I, I got to do some really awesome projects with innovation. Um, and and I felt like I we launched a lot of great different packaging concepts while I was there. So that was really fun. That's awesome. Um, and then, you know, I know aerospace feels kind of like home for you because of your parents and your engineering background. Um, is is there a reason that you decided to to move from Nike to there and then from there to uh, startup world? Yeah, I actually went there to Nike. So I started out in manufacturing. Oh, That's it. what I studied, manufacturing engineering. Yeah, and um, it was it was for a UAV company. I was a new product introduction, and it was like I loved my role, I loved my boss, but I had a recruiter reach out to me from Nike, and I was like, oh, this is like a really cool yeah. opportunity. <laughs> I had a, a packaging minor. Yeah. And I, I, I mean, I was just kind of like, oh, I guess I'll try interviewing and see if I like it. You know, um, I feel like that's kind of how a lot of like fun paths and opportunities open up. Absolutely. And 
yeah, um, I, I'm, I'm not in aerospace anymore, actually. So I feel like I love certain aspects of aerospace and it was like a really fun and challenging like subject to sit in. And I did some depot maintenance group with that as well. But I also had this packaging minor from school that I really wanted to like engage with before I forgot some of the subjects and, you know, um, like to get into that industry. And so when I moved to Nike too, I looked at it as kind of like this cross, cross-functional uh, learning experience to A, I did like my master's when I was at Nike in packaging as well. And then B, um, I felt like that would set me up to be like this subject matter expert in this thing that um, my, my packaging background basically like came from my mom, like being a recycling freak and um, yeah, taking awesome. us to like waste centers and stuff like that. So <laughs> that felt like she would tell me about these problems in the world, you know, and I'd be like, Ooh, how can I solve that? And so for me, like getting on the front end of it felt like the best way to show up in that space versus just trying to sort everything after the fact. Um, and I mean, there's still so much room for growth there. And I definitely am like kind of consulting a little bit in the, on the side in uh, the packaging sustainability space for quite a few companies. But um, yeah, I, I think it was like a, how can I, I studied manufacturing engineering. So I like learned a lot about um, Lean Six Sigma and like the different types of waste. And uh, one of those was inventory. So to me, I like wanted to create my own business always. I read like the four hour work week is like a middle schooler, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah. Um, my parents jealous like, of that okay? yeah like I, I didn't read it till i was out of college and i i was a book that you know, people always ask like if you could go back in time and tell past past version of yourself one thing it would have been read that book um because I, I wish yeah, I, I just wish i, I read it I earlier so I'm, je- I'm jealous of you for that um but sorry I mean, I felt, uh, yeah yeah i know it's good funny connection you know for a lot of people i think um so yeah that i think got me excited about efficiency that book and stuff just like in life and um time management and uh like i think i found that too in studying manufacturing and industrial engineering and then um i don't know like i never really wanted to though like create a business because i felt like from my environmental side of things there was a lot of compromises i would have to make unless it was just selling information um mm-hmm. that would allow okay. the world to do better kind of so that's where i sort of was like oh well i'll position like I'll step into this new position in packaging sustainability that will give me that like expertise and that background and that like um, use case at large scale, but also some understanding of smaller, smaller business stuff that um, I can do to impact that. And that's, I've really been enjoying showing up in like the smaller business space with that. Um, And just, just because I feel like they like don't necessarily always have the resourcing. So it's like really fun to be able to just jump in a little bit with them on the side project stuff um, and, and like show up more across scale than for just like one big company. I love that. Uh, I, I, I think it's, it's the way of the future. And I think Tim Ferriss is someone that helps, um, you know, disseminate this idea that we all need to be masters of none. And, you know, it seemed, I think many, many people yeah. listening to this might've been like, Oh, why did you leave such a great job at Nike? It's probably pretty stable. You, you love the people you worked with, love the team. But I think you realize that like, I've kind of learned a ton of information about this one aspect. Now I want to go use it and apply it in the real world while also expanding my knowledge base in other areas so then I can be better tasked to do what I need to do to give the most utility to the world and myself, correct? Yeah, I definitely feel that way. And I think just like my nature too, I like so value those people that can dive into something so heavily. Like um, my grandpa was like a, a PhD professor at Stanford in, in aerospace engineering. So he was like, so in it, you know, 
Mm -hmm. Um, and I look at myself and like, that just doesn't feel as exciting to me as like learning a lot different information about many things. Um, so I think like, I've definitely like given myself a break in, in terms of like trying to commit to something so heavily that I have to do it for the rest of my life. And I love like the adaptability that that gives me. Um, yeah, totally. And it's something that I push everyone I talk to into that space of, of just being like, you can, you can do whatever you want. You just have to go and do it. Um, and it yeah, sounds cliche, totally. go try it, <laughs> but, but just go give it a try. And I'm sure if it's like, if it, it's, if it's not sustainable as a full-time job, then do it as a side part-time job, you know, and, and pe people who are like, oh, I don't have the time or I don't want to, like, if you're not willing to spend time, even on the side to, um, really, build that foundation for what you want it's never going to happen elsewhere um you know no one's going to yeah. give it to you especially if it's something new so I, th um, I think it's such like an important practice of uh creating trust with yourself you know just like diving into something and fully committing to it and like seeing seeing it through i never thought about it like that and i i think i have some friends with imposter syndrome or uh, confidence issues that I think would benefit more from kind of putting themselves out there. And I think that phrasing it like that is really healthy. It's like you're building trust with yourself. I like that. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to borrow that <laughs> for, <laughs> Thanks, for a couple of Always. Um, I want to, I want to workshop this a little bit. So as you know, um, we're launching the first issue of the Holocene magazine um, in January, January 1st, so two months from the day, uh, super exciting. Um, yeah. and, uh, you have a piece in it, which we'll get to. Um, but the one thing that really delayed the uh, syndication of the first issue was finding a printer that could do it <laughs> in a sustainable way and the right way. Um, because we fully realized that we're putting out something paper, uh, in 2022. And I know what that means. Um, and so yeah. finally finding a printer that was, uh, willing that, you know, from start to finish is carbon negative, um, is pulling from resources that get replanted as soon as they get used. Um, just like, you know, nose to tail, so to speak. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, cradle use. Cradle. Yes. Credit I think is a better use in this term. Um, but the one problem that we have been having is, is packaging. And I think the big thing is that there are so many different options out there and, just because something says it's biodegradable or compostable doesn't necessarily mean, and I learned this recently, and I think something that I want you to talk about is like, doesn't necessarily mean that it is. Because um, like sometimes it's like industrially compostable, which is like learning about all these different things. I think it's really unfortunate the average consumer doesn't understand because they might be marketed uh, a certain product that seems like it's actually very sustainable when in actuality it might be worse than the incumbent, right? Um, yeah, totally. Do you want to talk to that? I, I think it's I think it's something that's actually becoming a real problem is like like companies are hijacking this green eco motive and actually making things that aren't as good as they say. Totally. I think there's like that whole aspect of marketing materials, you know, and I think um, we get stuck in this space a lot of being hopeful about something and not necessarily being that discerning. Um, I know I do like I'm rather optimistic, but when you understand like kind of how it impacts waste streams, et cetera, um, it, it's just like not worth it over overall in my mind, at least. Um, I mean, I think one of the challenges with our waste streams is just like how materials are valued and seen. Um, and like when I look at like a packaging item, for example, it's like I see true value in the specific material. Um, but the way we deal with our waste, especially in the U.S., is to like 
clump everything together and turn it into something that is basically just landfilled because there's no profitability around sorting it right now. Yep. Um, and so I think like you also touched on like biodegradability, et cetera. And um, I mean, everything's biodegradable at a certain degree, right? But is it going <laughs> to yeah. biodegrade in like 10,000 years or is it going to biodegrade like tomorrow? And do we have to worry about the product integrity if it gets packaged in something that's going to literally disintegrate while it's being shipped? Yeah. So, um, I mean, I think like the easiest, the easiest route in a lot of ways, that's very, um, I think it's, it's pretty well understood across the U S but not, not specifically well in certain regions, like the South is like paper can be recycled, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and that, I mean, that's sad because it's such like a broad, a broad thing and, and not all of that waste gets converted into something new. Like corrugate has a pretty high recoverability rate, but, um, paper and office paper in general it's not quite as high so um i think there's just like a lot of nuances in the system and then also looking at like where you're distributing goods and it gets really funky when you have to have like we had this problem at nike a lot the inventory accountability of knowing where something's going to go geography wise um to understand which waste systems that's hitting was always a huge challenge so um i mean something that i definitely try to do because we're like such an e-commerce based society now and um, everything can get shipped almost everywhere now in the world is to just like look at the materials that people will identify with as being something that could be recovered, i.e. like recyclable. Um, some of the compostable stuff coming out now is is really cool. There's a few companies. One of my like favorite is um, Sway out of the San Francisco. Like I think they're in Berkeley. Yeah, they're amazing. Um, yeah, they're super awesome. Um, they're like, I feel like actually doing the right thing in terms of material. And I think what happens is a lot of the larger companies that can kind of supply for um, someone who's like, for example, printing books at large scale and needs um, this like large steady source of uh, material, those those vendors that, that they're purchasing material from aren't necessarily creating the best solutions. And so it's about like taking those new solutions that have been proven um, to, to not impact the environment in negative ways and like trying to get the... I don't know that a large enough demographic to use them at scale to demand that they become a part of our normal uh, material streams and then go into our waste systems in responsible manners. Yeah. And so, so the, I, it's, off of that, from what I understand with Sway, the, their main purpose is to help create new systems unless they're saying, here's a brand new product that we made, let's use it, you know, which I think is, is, um, is probably more impactful in the, in the short term than you know, a brand new nascent product that's going to change the world, so to speak, um, as everyone yeah. wants to do. Totally. And I think, I mean, TerraCycle too has done like a really yeah. good job. Like Tom is such an interesting person to talk to. Um, I actually, he came and spoke at Nike and I got to talk to him and I was like, this is <laughs> the pinnacle of meeting my hero in the career. <laughs> but um, for packaging, at least, uh, I just think like his philosophy around um, waste transformation and just like societally like what he's doing is is super impactful and um brings like this really awesome level of accountability that hasn't been there before that's i think that's a separate remind me of a separate point i want to touch on a bit um but wrapping this up and what you're saying about you know tom and and TerraCycle and sway is that there there are many people trying to solve this problem um and and unfortunately they don't get adapted overnight because cost is still such a large driver of so many things um, but, yeah, for sure. you know, I, I think we're getting to a point where very soon, if not now, the cheapest option is probably also coming close to the option that has 
the least amount of waste because um, it just downstream it just always comes back to especially like amazon who's shipping i don't know tens of millions of packages a day in the united states alone um if not more yeah. especially during the holidays like they they're understanding that like we need to figure this out because this is going to come right back to bite us because you know they 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 move in one percent in one direction and that wipes out like a whole you know quadrant of the e-commerce space that even know it you know totally um, so in terms of the magazine getting back to that you know we've been workshopping yeah. <laughs> different ways of uh of how to ship this um because like there there are plenty of corrugate mailers that that work um but like what's yeah. the actual recyclability rate that people are going to do that um there are plenty of interesting like sleeves made of biomaterials um that can uh like are are compostable but some of them are only industrial compostable and how many people are actually going to you know get rid of those properly versus just throwing them out in the trash um and then you know there's the problem of like will they bend will they get creased because if i have to resend a magazine to someone because usps messes it up that's way more impactful than just a little bit of cardboard in the first place to make sure that it doesn't get messed up so you know um definitely going to talk with yeah. you offline <laughs> about this because <laughs> i do think there's a lot of room and space for something new and i it's one of the things we're totally. like uh, packaging, I've learned it's either the exact same thing it's been the past 20 years or it's on the cutting, bleeding edge of what's next. Um, have you heard of the company called Seed? They make a probiotic. Um, yes, a daily totally. Product. Yeah, so I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a supporter of them. Um, they're in the first issue of the magazine. I've been using their product personally for a few years now, um, but they have some of the best bio-inclusive packaging I've seen. Um, yeah. in terms of like they ship, uh, refills in these, uh, com compostable sleeves, um, inside of a compostable packaging with like this cellulose foam. Um, I, yeah. it's really cool. I don't know how much of it is, is really as eco-friendly as they say. Um, and you can talk to that <laughs> if you'd like, but I just think I love yeah, the totally. effort. Um, and I'm happy to pay for it, you know? Yeah, I know some of the, some of the different like alternatives out there are pretty interesting. I definitely when I'm advising people, I always say like stick with the home compostable certification because then it will truly compost wherever it goes. But on the real, like how many people have home composting set up and how many municipalities really actually recover food waste, you know? Um, so, so those are definitely things to consider. And I think like obviously are a little bit more localized in terms of where the product's going at the end of the day. Like if you're a small business and you're serving a certain community that you know has um, food waste pickup, then hell yeah, go for something that's uh, in-home compostable and people can put it right in their compost bins. Um, I do think like the industrial compostable, in my mind, even if it's getting to the industrial compost at a certain point, there's like very few, um, I don't know, locations that they do that in truly. Yeah. And it's a pretty energy intensive process when it is industrial composted. Um, either it has to be like at the bottom of a giant waste pile, which creates the right temperature and um, just environmental requirements to do that breaking down, or it needs to go into something that requires additional energy to break down that waste versus something like a really simple mechanical shredding process that occurs in paper recycling. Yeah. Um, so like, it's really interesting to like looking at packaging from a data perspective and understanding it from like, what's the life cycle assessment of these different materials, for example, to pack your um 
magazine issue in. Like you said, like A, the product can't be damaged. That's the number one like use and reason for packaging is maintaining product integrity. So like we never want to question that. Um, and the packaging's purpose is there to protect the product. So um, I think like just hearing what you're saying about it, I would go with something like a, like a corrugate uh, sleeve for it if possible. Um, and you could do like a single wall corrugate. So it'd have exposed corrugate on one side, which would use less paper, like a little mm, bit less sheet paper. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. But just because that truly is like the most recyclable item. And like you said, it's so dated, um, but it's just <laughs> uh, like, I would say globally understandable, understood that that's recyclable. Yeah. Um, and then like paper wrap is some other options, but if you're worried mm -hmm. about, about it getting bent, you kind of need that rigidity. Um, and same thing with some of those sleeves, they, they come out usually in a life cycle assessment as being like a lot smaller because paper weight in general is a little bit heavier per volume than, um, like a plastic film or a bio-based film. Uh, but at the end of the day, like if you're worried about the product getting bent, then you should definitely put it in something rigid. Yeah. And I, I agree with all that and make sure to send a bill to uh, my team and we'll get you paid for your <laughs> consulting oh time. Gosh, stop. Um, no worries. No, always. And, and, and to be fair, it's like, it's something where, uh, you know, people get so secretive about new ideas and processes, but with, with me and, oh, and what the, 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 the team. And so like my whole thing is that think about it and I'm saying this live on purpose. Um, but if you and I <laughs> can workshop like a new magazine, um, uh, or, or some kind of periodical for books and other types of paper documents, even photos, things that can't be bent. Yeah, love it's, it. It's in, uh, we'll launch a new product. We'll do it. I'll, um, I'll help uh, bootstrap it and we'll, <laughs> we'll do it. And then it'll be, we'll test it with, uh, magazines. Cause like my whole thing is this is I, I'm sure this happened to everyone listening to this at one point. Um, I ordered a chair, uh, from a company called blue dot. It's like a furniture manufacturer. Mm -hmm. Um, and because they put it such like simple, thin, uh cardboard around it because they were claiming to be like the more efficient eco-friendly shipping option i it took it took three chairs before i got one that wasn't damaged and oh i was God, just um, thinking terrible. about how much has was wasted in a box that's you know 30 by 30 by 40 inches that weighs 20 pounds i was like it's taking up a good portion of the fedex truck it's taking up a good portion of the plane it went on or the truck it got moved on and it happened three times for one product like why like just ship it in that point in like a metal container and pick up the metal container again, you know, like, <laughs> like, it, yeah, you know, totally. And, and I think that's where we're headed, you know, um, we'll talk about this offline, but there's a couple different product companies I'm working with that are utilizing reusable containers for shipping larger, more expensive items in where it's like, Hey, awesome. you know, sh ship back the container when you're done. And some people will be like, screw that. But if you're upfront about it being like, Hey, we're shipping this in a container, it'll mean you get it a hundred percent safe. Um, and you also have an option to send it back when you're done. Um, and if you don't send it back, we're going to charge you for the container. Um, and I think most people would play ball once they knew that they're going to get charged for it. Right. Um, yeah, but I think, probably. I think, I think people going back to the seed thing, the seed probiotic, um, it's, it's an expensive product. It's 50, $50 a month for probiotics, which, uh, for many people like me for what it does for my gut, um, and other, you know, digestive issues I've had in the past, it's absolutely worth the money. But for the average American consumer, that's crazy. Um, and so they may not appreciate or even understand why it has this way. And I think you made up a good point. Like, you know, I'm sitting here in San Diego, California. I think you're, I assume you're up in Oregon right now. Like two places that are very understanding of like 
you can recycle a lot of things and we need to be better about conserving resources. But there are some people that will be listening to this that grew up in communities that just don't understand that like they should recycle the things that come in their mail they throw out and their newspaper and their packaging and their wrapping paper at Christmas. Like it's it's basic yeah. stuff to a lot of people, but some people just don't know. And it's sad. Um, I don't, yeah, I there's like ease it. of ease of use and then I think there's also like teaching people and like maybe creating some sort of system like bottle return right like mm -hmm. that gets a bunch of different types of communities involved with recycling um and obviously that's because the material value is high enough that it's worth it um oh. and I think it like at a certain point like with the way the population of the world is growing and our resource diminishing um that might be something that in our waste streams eventually collection becomes necessary you know yeah. Um, and I think I think that would definitely help like curb the the waste issue. I'm all for incentivization of uh practices to be allow them to become systems. And you know, I've I've talked yeah. to friends about this. Like imagine at the grocery store every item had a a, a kind of a deposit slash tax where like imagine you're buying a box of cereal. Um you have the cardboard box, um, there is uh usually a plastic uh container inside of it that is holding the cereal that could probably be made out of a biomaterial pretty easily. And so I think that I like this, this kind of two way idea where, you know, just like you buy a big glass bottle, you paid a 10 cent deposit and you get it back when it's returned. Same thing with cardboard. Maybe that, the, you know, maybe there was uh let's just say six ounces of cardboard that went into creating that. I don't know, making stuff up. Six ounces of cardboard that went into making that box. And so the person would also pay a deposit. They would get back on like a monthly or yearly basis by just recycling and having their town pick up. And it's a lot of honor system, a lot of things like that. But I think it would kind of just that extra couple bucks a month would help push people to do that. And I think on reverse, I believe that if you, if I'm General Mills and I am making hundreds of millions of boxes of cereal a year and maybe switching to a bio container or something that's like home compostable someone where someone's done with the package they can throw it in their compost or they can just throw it in the landfill and even then down the line it's still better than it being plastic right um you know taxing the company that still uses the plastic versus switching to something bio and it kind of forces that change at the higher level to happen because I think that downstream effects basically corporations and even small businesses it's not just corporations are basically taking the cheaper option and it's good for the short term, but we're literally mortgaging the future existence of our species against it. And people are going to say, oh, I'm being exaggeratory or I'm being dramatic, but I'm not, sadly. Um, yeah. And you know very well, right? Um, it's, no, yeah, I'm with you. It's sad. So, but... Um, yeah, I mean that we're just yeah. talking about recyclability and reusability and, and a lot of the companies I work with are around water usage. And so, you know, I've had the discussion a few times with my dad who spent 10 minutes cleaning out a peanut butter container to recycle it. I'm like, you're better off <laughs> in my mind throwing out the container because the amount of water you're using to clean that is not worth the benefit of recycling the glass container. Um, and I've gone in many arguments with people and I'm sure you and I could have a debate right now if you wanted to, but like, it's, it's true. It, it's like, it's all about different resources. It's not just, unfortunately there's, it's omni-channeled at this point. And we always have to consider like, what is the most precious of those resources, right? Yeah, for sure. And I mean, I think like it's the milkman model, right? Like we used to do it before and there was hardly any trash. And I was talking to a friend recently who visited Italy and she was just talking about how like excessive their trash situations are. 
oh, um, yeah. especially in like Sicily. Yeah, and partly if you think about it, that's because like we've changed the model so much on them that like they can't even keep up with physically dealing with trash on the streets, et cetera. Because before they didn't have, like they just didn't have to buy that when they bought product, food, whatever. Um, so I think like there is definitely like, hopefully some change that can happen with like returning to the old and maybe being like a little bit less germaphobic and wrapped up in, in sheet plastic. Cause at the end of the day, like really all we're doing is, um, not giving our immune systems the privilege of showing up strongly. Right. Yeah, um, absolutely. but I think also, like you said, there's like so many options in food packaging that haven't been discovered, like really played with, um, no. and even like creating, like you said, like a cereal bag, I don't know, like make it out of collagen or something, you know, yeah. that can, they can, someone can dissolve that as quote unquote milk. Um, there's, there's so much room for growth there for sure. And, and the sad thing is these companies, I think would be, it's in their best interest long-term to almost always long-term. The problem is the way that our current economic system is set up is purely for short-term gains, especially public companies. Yeah. Um, for sure. you know, and that's why I think that that's why I always applaud someone like Apple and, uh, you know, because they, even though they produce a ton of waste and they, they're aware of it, they always seem to be making a very conscious effort to minimize packaging minimize making the extra thing um, while they also know they're contributing a lot to it, but they also realize that like they can have a large um, uh, kind of direction. And I, and I love Apple because Apple is really the first few companies that made packaging sexy, you know, um, there's <laughs> yeah, like every, every remembers sure. when they opened up their first Apple product that was purely themselves. And it's, it's always an experience. It's like a very enjoyable experience. And I've opened luckily like dozens and dozens of Apple products over the years. And each time I get stoked to do it. And I'm sure you know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, yeah, definitely. Unboxing is like a big, a big piece, especially like working at Nike. It was like, there's so many exclusive sneakers, et cetera, that had mm -hmm. like those requirements as well. Yeah. And I'm a, I'm a, I know we've talked about this before, but I'm a big sneaker head. Um, and <laughs> I did want to talk about that. And in terms of I need really? to have some some fun some fun sneakers that I'm sure you have in your collection that you got that many people would be jealous of. But kind of going off that, um, I've had this conversation recently where like I love Nikes because it's I, I love their direction, but also there's for every good thing there's also a lot of bad. You know, like nothing's ever perfect. Totally. Um, and you know, some people will say like, oh, it's um, I listen to this great podcast. Um, there's this cool individual named Petra. She used to work at Nike. All the can, you know, amazing things in consumer packaging we can do. But I still went to Foot Locker last week and I saw uh, in the clearance section a thousand orange cardboard boxes. So like, what are they actually <laughs> doing? You know, and so I, I think yeah. that there's so much we can do and so much we need to do, but people need to realize that it just it, it can't happen overnight. It can't even happen over a year, sadly. Um, it's yeah, a totally. very long process so I, I guess my question to you is like what do you what do you think the next step is do you think we'll see a day when minus the super exclusive pairs of sneakers like you know people like maybe uh you know just like i think it's become norm in, in some cities where you go into a whole foods hot bar you use your own container um and they assume yeah. the container is a half a pound um which most people don't know so if you bring in a light container you actually get some free food <laughs> and they're happy to take that loss but it's not even a loss for them um because i think downstream it helps um so what, what do you think the future is? Do you think people come and pick up sneakers and walk out with them in their own container or their own, just on their feet? Or what do you, what do you think? Yeah, we, I mean, we definitely talked about this when I was there and um, there was definitely like really fun suggestions. Um, one of the things that they did do, and I think they definitely still do it, but they like collect old shoes. So one of the suggestions or like 
I think this was just concepting. We never actually put it into practice, but um, the skate team at the time before a bunch of reorgs was super like on their game um, in terms of like trying to do the right thing. And um, actually a good buddy of mine, Jared, was like driving a lot of really cool um, kind of cultural changes just at local skate shops. So grassroots effort style um, around like maybe collecting old skate shoes and Nike has this program called reuse a shoe. So they like grind it into regrind, um, which then gets put into things like Home Depot, carpet cushioning and tracks, mm. you know? Yeah. Um, so separating out material and like finding a future use for it, which is actually, um, I mean, sometimes we even had trouble selling it because of like the purity of it, but we'll take, they would take any type of sneaker and, and grind it down into something new. And we had a few, I think, pop-up events at skate shops where when people brought in a pair of sneakers, they get like X number of X percent off their, their new yeah. purchase. Um, awesome. And, or we talked about doing something like that with the boxes. One of the major projects that I worked on when I was at Nike was with um, a really awesome team in innovation. And they were really looking to do the right thing. It was the space hippie team. So they created like, the lowest carbon footprint Nike shoe. Um, and it was like a high heat product launch, but they were willing to take a risk on the packaging um, because previously, I, I mean, packaging at Nike with a high heat product is normally like part of the value of the product, right? Like the resale goes down if you can't sell it the same. And so we took like a pretty big risk. Um, I came up with this concept that was called one box. So it's like ship and own container, similar to what Amazon was doing with some of their products. Um, and just made like the shoe box, the single container that would go to the consumer, which had a huge amount of reduction in terms of overall sure. material usage, yeah. um, specifically at our DCs, not necessarily product applied packaging. Um, and we, there was some uproar, a little bit of uproar, I would say afterwards, but I think people got kind of used to it. And then like on the other side of the sneakers thing and, and high heat product, I always like wear whatever shoes I buy, right? Like I, I have some like high heat shoes, but I, I literally wear them. Like when I was working at Nike, my friends would kind of laugh at me, but also be like, I love that you're wearing like your off whites to the gym right now. And yeah. I'd be like, well, yeah, they're like functional footwear. Like I'm not going to buy something <laughs> that I'm not going to use. And, and to people um, who are unfamiliar, I mean, like, could you describe high heat and just like as plain terms as possible? Uh, yeah. So basically Nike does like a, a lot of collaborations and specific colorways um, that they drop usually on the sneakers app. And so it's kind of like a, a gamble or like a, a process to get them where a bunch more people, there's higher demand than there is supply. And they create this basically like sneakers economy almost off of it. Um, and it started with, with an SB shoe um, a number of years ago. Yeah. And it's, it's something that's blown up. And if anyone here is unfamiliar with this market um, and near a major city, especially New York City, I recommend just walking to a place like Stadium Goods. And if you're unfamiliar with this economy, you'll be blown away very quickly into A, how large it is, and B, how lucrative it can be. Um, and it's almost all the shoes I wear. Um, and I know that sounds kind of cliche to say, but like I love the story behind every shoe. Um, and I think some people wear them for the clout, other people wear them for the story. Sometimes they're just really damn good looking shoes. Um, but I'm the person where like, I, I'm a big Jordan ones guy. Um, and I bought, uh, there was a special pair that came out a few years ago. It was all white leather with a suede swoosh and the retro style tongue, um, with the retro style branding. And there's like probably seven, 800 bucks right now. Um, but I wore them very often. I have two pairs of them. One is absolutely absolutely destroyed i'll like go out in them if i'm going out with friends 
Um, but like, I just like you, like I, if I buy a pair of $2,000 off white Jordans, like I'm going to wear them and I'll wear them to the ground. Um, my friends had to talk me out of buying the Dior Jordan ones, um, yeah. because they're stupid expensive, but the same thing, like I would have worn them into the ground and I still been wearing them probably once they were ripped and tattered. Cause to me, it's like, they're still usable when they become unusable, then I'll recycle them or I'll put them on the, like a Dior's I'd put on the wall, but like, you know, um, <laughs> But I think I think there are people out there that in the sneakerhead community that I disagree with, and the fact that they probably hated your one box because they want a mint box they can keep on a shelf and assess value on StockX and make sure they're maintaining their quote unquote investment. And if they wear a shoe, they want to keep it perfect. But you know that's why I always love going to Stadium Goods because most of the dudes in there that work there they loved seeing me wear these shoes because they're like most people wouldn't wear those and it was like raining outside they're like aren't you afraid to get those wet? Yeah, totally. i'm like no it's it's it, it's a shoe you know um and i saw people there's always if you walk around soho on a rainy day there will always be people with like literal trash bags around their sneakers and it's just some sneakerhead that went out didn't know it was gonna rain and is literally willing to wear trash bags in their feet instead of getting the shoes wet um and that should just show you and I think that's the problem. That's the problem you're running into, right? Is like some people do take it as a commodity, but I think they're shoes. Um, so it's a it's a fun, yeah. duplicitous um, economy. But uh, I do love the fact that you do work out in off whites. Um, you, it's what the original, <laughs> which they, they were the Air Maxes, if I remember correctly, it was the of the ten, yeah. Yeah, and I th I think I were I have like some Vapor Maxes that I would work out in, but like amazing, I don't know. It was just like easier for me. You know, it's like convenient. Yeah, sure. I'm not going to bring two pairs of running shoes to work in one day, you know? For sure. But also like Virgil uh, would be applauding you right now, you know? I, I would hope so. Yeah. Like um, he, he made things for people to use, right? Yeah. And I think he hated, I think he secretly hated the sneaker culture that he's talked about this in like hidden interviews where like he hated the idea that his Jordan ones, like the remake of his favorite shoe of all time that now I think is eight to $9,000 for a pair of dead stock uh, and dead stock. People I don't know is like unworn, um, basically shoes that haven't really left the box minus some, maybe someone looked at them. Um, and, uh, I think he would have wanted people just to use them and wear them. And there always be peace. You know, there always be people that want to save them and collect them and, and use them as a commodity. And people have made, as you know, a ton of money off of buying and selling seekers. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I think that the point of it is to wear it. Um, and if you're if you're just gonna like buy a pair of shoes to let them sit there, um, what's the point, right? Yeah, some people use them as art, but <laughs> you know, to each to each their own. I'm not gonna shit on anyone for doing what they what they believe in. Um, okay, so um, if anyone wants to learn more about sneakers um, or anything else that we mention in this uh, podcast so far, uh, I always put show notes down below, um, and basically anything we mention. That's maybe a term or a brand or a person. Um, they're hyperlinked below. Uh, so you can very quickly kind of dig. You don't have to worry about repeating the episode or like skipping backwards to try to spell it. Just look below. Um, sorry for that little foray, Petra. Um, so oh, I love that. I always yeah. control F my podcast. <laughs> yeah, for, for sure. I think it's so important. And, and, and I'm at the point now with, in terms of podcast revenue where I can thankfully like pay to have the shows um, – I'm working, I'm, I'm trying trying this new service that automatically does the transcripts. So I'm also going to have transcripts soon of the podcast because some people want to read them and there's a whole community out there that I cannot hear that I'm sure I will, I want to tap in as well. And I think that there's an underserved community of individuals that are deaf that would love um, to read podcasts. Um, so that's something that I think is really important. 
Um, actually, that's one last thing I want to talk to you about in terms of Nike. Um, Nike's doing a lot of stuff and in, in, in technology right now in terms of shoes for people that really don't have the ability to um, uh, you know, maybe even lace or put on shoes themselves. Do you want to talk about you know, like the adaptive? I don't know what the overall program name is or was, um, but do you want to talk about that? Uh, yeah, sure. I can a little bit. Um, I was there like right when that first sneaker launch, uh, the, the first adapt. Um, and yeah, they they did some really cool, like engineering around auto lacing. Um, and I think part of that was like convenience for people. And part of that was serving a need, um, in terms of disability, et cetera. They also have like a really cool program where they come out with some shoes where they work with, um, one of the local hospitals one of the local children's hospitals, and they like choose designs that kids pick make with a designer um and launch those every year as a fundraiser so they definitely have some like really fun um thoughtful uh footwear products and uh, i mean other products in general that they're coming out with that i think is like going in the direction of serving more people's needs which is pretty beautiful love it um and using that as a good foray into the next topic um so for the upcoming issue of holocene magazine um, you wrote a piece, uh, it's currently one page. Uh, do you want to kind of elevator pitch what it's about to the audience? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think like from the last couple of years of just like wildness, um, I've felt like, like what is really important to me is like connecting with nature and connecting with people. Um, and I, I sort of talk about this a little bit in the piece of like, taking away some of those like self-judgments and um, I just think like expectations that we put on ourselves and others around us um, that don't allow us to really full, fully show up as who who we maybe want to be on like more of a soul level. Um, so yeah, I think it, I definitely talk about like some of the systems in society today that like do not, they coach us to not be who we are by nature. Um, and and kind of like ask us to conform in a lot of different ways to to thoughts and principles that I think that we should question um, for the pure sake of curiosity and being open to maybe some some new systems that might work better for the rest of the world um, and for people as a whole. Just because we're kind of in like, I think this weird crux of like extremely high rates of mental illness, disconnection, but like weirdly technology connecting a bunch of people in maybe like a less authentic way than um, human beings were really designed to communicate originally. And I think in some ways we're adapting to that for sure. Um, but yeah, I think I think I have like peak experiences in my life that really defines like this deep connection with nature that I know is part of my values. Um, and, and one of those was like being on the Grand Canyon for, um, we were on it, I think for 16 days. And so we did like this long trip and it was just like, I don't know, like you could never experience, at least for me, I felt like there was like no stress out there. Um, and I mean, maybe the little stress there was around a few of the rapids were like, it was like more excitement, you know, and like understanding that like you're putting yourself at a little bit of risk, but you're like doing this fun passage and like getting through it with with the group that you're on that river with. Um, and then I think like those peak experiences show up too in like daily life in just different forms of like how we choose to engage like for me, it's like feeling in flow sometimes is like in nature, especially like a powder day or like mountain biking, a specific really cool line that has just like a lot of 
um, maybe more like gnarly and true to nature elements than um, like a really smooth, smooth uh, flow trail. Um, and, and like being out on the ocean, kiting or surfing, those things all make me feel like so engaged with life and people and nature. And I think that's like what could help solve a lot of our mental, our mental health issues. <laughs> I love it. And, and I, as soon as I read it, I was like, this is going in. Um, and and no, cause it it, it encapsulates a lot of what I believe, uh, and what a lot of people that wrote pieces that are as part of the magazine, this first issue and, and beyond, um, and a lot of people in the second issue, um, there's a, there's a big theme. I think if people ask you like, Oh, what's, what's the theme? And like, there is no theme, but there is an underlying belief of the collective group that most, if not everyone that has contributed to the magazine in this issue and will be in the next issue. Um, that connection with the natural world is incredibly important and connection with yourself and everyone else who inhabits it is also super duper important. Um, and just how we can expand and give back. Um, something you said, I, I actually reminded me of a, of a really fun dinner conversation I've had recently, which I think I would kind of wait, I want you to weigh in on. Um, so you said that, um, you know, mental illness levels are crazy highs and I do not disagree with that. Um, but I also think they've always been high. I just think that the incoming generation Gen Z, um, you and I, I think are both millennials. Um, like I think we're a lot more comfortable talking about mental illness than our parents and especially grandparents were. Um, and I think it goes back to like, I don't like making this comparison, but it's the best comparison where, uh, you know, Dave Chappelle said, um, you know, people aren't getting more racist. They're just being recorded now. Um, and I think it's the same kind of idea, right? Yeah. I think, I think the levels of mental health are the same. Um, or if, if not a change because of, you know, they're different. Cause like, you know, maybe the stressors in the 1940s was around war and global terror and the, and the feelings in the sixties and seventies might've been around, you know, uh, different conflicts in the cold war. And now it's, it's whole, it's all, it's all different. Right. So I think the stressors are always changing, but I think people are becoming a lot more open and talking about it. What, what do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I think I I definitely agree that there's like always been mental health issues. Um, I I don't know. I would have to look at data to understand. Like, and I think we also just like recently started recording data on like what is considered like a stable environment, etc. But I do know that like suicide rates apparently are way up from previous way years. Yeah. Um, and so that to me is like a pretty strong indicator of like people are kind of like questioning their will to live. Um, and that also like plays into like this whole Maslow's hierarchy of needs thing, right. Where it's like, we used to experience much more hardship. And I think in some ways that created, um, like this space to almost live in more joy. And mm, wow. that like, that's kind of my opinion of history in some ways. Like, it's like, I look at my grandpa who's just like, grew up on like this rural farm in Montana, super poor. They could barely like get enough food on the table for their six boys. And he would just like go do these like crazy funny things. He always had a paper route. Like he worked so hard. And like, to this day, he is still such like a hard worker. I think um, I admire him. And like, I see that in my dad so much. Um, they're just like constantly going. And I think that's partly because that's like what brings them joy is they like find this this purpose in work and it's partly because like life is hard without yeah. that you know 
Um, that's that's a really this, fresh perspective. Sorry, I keep talking. I'm not trying to get you off. Oh no, no, I love it. Thanks, but I, I that's like kind of how I see it in a lot of ways. Like we, I think also, in addition to, like not maybe knowing the exact statistics of mental health in the past, just because of where we were with that specific science. Um, also, we now are such privileged. We're so privileged, right, in the society, like there's a, so many terrible things happening, but also I think there's like, we are given so much more in our lives than we had ever been before. Right. Like in totally. terms of like, at least Ability, in the U S like access, privilege, system. education. Yeah. And like, yeah, <laughs> literally internet's pretty much like something that you could go find for free and use and learn anything on, you know? Totally. So it's like, I think we're just missing that piece of like the work ethic and the motivation. And when you're given so much for free, you're not necessarily motivated um or incentivized to like work really hard for something um you know yeah a very controversial polarizing figure today um who's been in the news a lot recently elon musk um says something a few years ago in the joe rogan podcast the first one the famous one where he you know uh smoked uh, a, a joint and you know, <laughs> caused some issues i have no problem with it that personally some people do but regardless of that um he said something very interesting and he said he thinks a lot of people are depressed nowadays because they now understand what is out there and what's possible. And this whole idea is like comparison is the thief of joy. Um, and he quoted that from yeah, somewhere sure. said it, and, 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 and that a long time ago. And it's true, right? It's like yeah. if you grew up poor in the middle of nowhere and had no reference to what also existed, you know, you could figure out what's pretty, pretty happy. But unfortunately, you have people that are growing up in you know it's it's everything like maybe someone's in an abusive relationship and they see a healthy relationship online and that can be triggering for them that can be very destructive it could be someone that could barely afford to be able to eat food and then see like a food instagram page where someone's literally just ordering everything at a restaurant and again it's going to waste and being thrown out uh just for like taking a couple pictures you know so i i think that i'm not saying that you know it's no one's fault like i think everyone is allowed and has the right to post and share and celebrate or, you know, not celebrate whatever they want. But I think we also have to keep in mind that, you know, um, I sometimes post things because I enjoy it or it's because of, it's a fond memory for myself. But to some people that could be seen as showing off or um, trying to one up or one down or whatever you want to phrase it. But I don't know. Social media is, is a, uh, the best, the best take I've ever read was in this newsletter that lasted for a year by this guy on Twitter who remained anonymous. And he basically said that social media is a modern panopticon. Um, if people don't know, it was mm-hmm. a style of French prison where um, basically every in is like in a dome with these glass walls where every inmate basically got to look at every single other inmate and what they were doing. So basically everyone was constantly on good behavior because they were being watched by everyone else. And I think that we are in this modern version of that where everyone feels like they're constantly being monitored. They feel like they not and not in terms of behaving, but feel like they have to adhere to one kind of thinking or one kind of style or one kind of fashion or one kind of trend because it's what's happening. And people want views and clicks and um, hype and clout. And it's just, you know, I look at the modern generation and there are people that are like, what do you want to be when you're older? I want to be a YouTube creator. Um, and that's great. Yeah. And, and, and like, <laughs> Look, there are many versions of YouTube creators. There's someone like um, Mr. Beast who genuinely wants to do it for entertainment value, but he also creates a lot of good in communities while he does it. There's people like MKBHD who 
make some of the crispiest, as he would say, content out there. Um, and he just wants to review tech. And then there's some people that just want to do it for clout and post stupid things and just be the last person to say the dumbest thing um, in the room. And so I don't know anymore. <laughs> like, I'm just... Yeah, I mean, I think I think the lens that which you look through social media really matters. Like, I know... And it's also just like, like you said, like the biggest view into the absolute duality in the world, right? Like we just have people who are barely surviving and we have people who are like living in absolute vitality. And I think, like you said, like that makes your community less of the barometer for how you feel about the world and the global world and like the global population more of the the barometer of your expectations of what you'd like to happen in your life, you know? Yeah, totally. I couldn't have said better myself. Um, and with social media, particularly, um, like, I, I don't know, I've, I've been the Instagram app. I've been trying, I've been I've really toned down my social media usage the past few years. And I'm really happy about because there was a time, you know, my young twenties, right. Is blew so much time on that and dating apps. Um, and because <laughs> they're addictive and, and it's like, it's enjoyable. And especially when it's like one of them is about status and wealth. The other one's about sex. Like it's, it's, those are like the basic, you know, we're going back to Maslow's hierarchy of needs. It's like, um, I think Naval Ravikant said like the problems. I was of, literally just going to bring him up. <laughs> yeah. So the, he's like the problems, the modern problems are problems of excess versus like a hundred yeah. years ago, if you were able to have a little piece of sugar and a little piece of information and be able to watch a movie in a cinema, like that's awesome. But nowadays it's the opposite, right? You can do all these things. You could watch porn all day. You could eat, you know, enough sugar to balloon up to a house and give yourself um, I think that's the amazing thing is like we have access to incredible amounts of nutrition on all levels um, and people can basically eat themselves to death. And it's possible in this country um, that that happens and it happens every day and, and people don't really talk about it. Um, but yeah. the, the whole point I'm making on, on what Naval said and what what is going on is I've been on Twitter the past few days because Instagram has been crashing for me. And also because it's really interesting to see what's been going on with Elon taking over and, and what changes they're making. And today he announced that um, they're going to charge to be verified to get the blue check next to your name. Um, and basically he said it, he's like the whole system of fiefdom of like, um, Kings and peasants of who is verified and who is not as dumb. So basically you're going to pay eight bucks a month to be verified. Um, and I don't necessarily agree with it on the main level, but I understand he's trying to get around this fact of, you know, it was a status thing. And to that point, someone's recommendation, and it went viral yesterday, was there should be one single gold check mark, and whoever owns it, all you have to do is pay a dollar more than the last person. Um, and it'd be pretty amazing to see how quickly that number would go and how high it would go. Like a free economy? Pretty much. But because it, would, I, yeah. I think it would fly from zero to a million dollars, like in the matter of an hour or less. Um, and then I think it would probably settle up in the billions of dollars there's going to be there's always going to be some guy or girl or person or individual that values that you know and then it basically becomes a pissing contest between the richest people in the world at one point um and the people with most maybe the maybe apple wants it because they can just outbid everyone you know who knows right like like i yeah. i just i just i just like i like the the thought the thought exercise that came with that it's just like where would it end and who would it be and at the end of the day like everyone would still hate the person that had it, but would still marvel at it. You know, it's like why Kings and Queens had like, you know, 800 carat scepters and gold crowns. Um, 
I don't know. So what were you going to say about Naval? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's such an interesting thought experiment. And I also think it would never end. And it would always it be would a never piece end. of tragedy. Yeah. So I just like, I don't choose to participate in those things, you know, like the social Smart. status. I mean, Naval says something that like always has resonated me with, with me really heavily. Um, and basically it was that any platform that considers people users of it are like, essentially you're being manipulated. So like use boundaries wisely. Right. So Correct. when I like go onto social media, my pure purpose for going on there is either to feel inspired, connect with people I love or share content that I think is meaningful. And I don't like ever look at it as a lens of like, oh, I wish my life was like that. And I think because of that, like I have friends who I'm like not huge on social media at all, but I have friends who um, do that. They like make money off of it. One of them's a clean beauty influencer and she puts out awesome content, Sarah Rosie. And my friend Nika like went viral on TikTok making dance tutorials. So both like, I would say content creation that adds values to people's lives. Um, through like a type of education, obviously in the arts. Um, and and yeah, but I also think like they have that struggle of the relationship where it's like, that's their professional lives too. So it's like mm -hmm. being able to like put boundaries up and take a step back from that. Like we've talked about a lot and, and Nika has even been like, I so admire your like detachment with social media and the ability to go on it and yet not engage in like a, a negative way. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that that's just like a boundary exercise for people, right? It should be. And it's, and it's, a. Uh, have luckily enough had a few people on this podcast that have significant followings and have talked about this. Um, Annie McIntosh, yeah. who is a photographer and she even calls herself an influencer, even though she doesn't like it, um, up in Vancouver. And she's talked about, um, especially from the lens of being a woman on the platform that, that is like using it for content. Um, and there's that balance between like, she loves seeing what her friends are doing and she loves being inspired, but also it is her main means of income a lot of the time. And so there's that balance of like having a heavy respect for it, but also relying on it. Um, and yeah. then obviously I've had, sure. you know, Chris Burkhart and Alex Stroll who combined have like 8 million followers on Instagram. Um, and they both have very different approaches to social. Um, you know, Chris uses it as a platform for inspiring people to get outside and go to places that haven't. Uh, been as explored. Um, but he is the person that's mainly been, um, you know, uh, put at the head of the table in terms of like getting Iceland to become a super popular tourist destination. And he's talked about it on the first podcast we had about a year ago. Like he's super yeah. thankful and the community there is super thankful for all the tourism money they've gotten. But there's also places that have been had to shut down because they had too many people coming. And he's fully aware of that. And he, and he understands that, that there's a trade off there. But you know, I think his take, which I love, is that it's, uh, he's like, I'll, I think it's important to people know the information and I'll leave it up to the individual countries and places to decide how they want to regulate it. Which I think is a really good way of doing it because like he has no business telling Iceland what they should do. Um, he just trying yeah, to inspire sure. people. Um, and, you know, that, I remember, do you remember a few years ago, there's a huge movement to like uh, remove geotags and like a lot of big landscape and wildlife photographers like started just not adding geotags. Totally. To um, and I feel like it still happens now. It still happens. The The problem is, is there's two kinds. So the people like Chris will just, and he's, he's gotten good at this. Um, they'll say Iceland, right. Um, and Iceland's huge, right. It's the size of Kentucky. Yeah. It's, it's massive. So like saying Iceland is like, uh, but there's always someone in the comments like, Oh, that's this. Um, but yeah, there's also totally. the people that are doing it for clout that don't want to tell you where their photo was taken. Um, so I think there's a, there's a trade off there. 
Um, I'm a big believer and I've gone straight to like, if I'm in Morocco, it's Morocco. If it's in the Alps, I say the Alps. Like, I'm not going to say like, oh, it's this peak and this mountain. Unless I think it's something that, you know, if it's a museum or something that gets more value from people going there. Sure. Um, yeah. You know, and I think. Like, that, how can you uplift the, the <laughs> experiences that want that and then like not exploit the ones that are um, maybe something. I think it's like more of an invitation to go explore when you put it mm. in like a larger country radius or something like that, you know? Sure. And I think that that's, that's the one thing is, is uh, I learned this the hard way and I think a lot of people will is that I spent a lot of money and time to get to one spot to take one photo back in like 2015, 16, when I was like, oh, I'm going to be an Instagram influencer photographer. <laughs> um, and I got there and I was just so depressed. I was like, I spent all this time, and money to get this one photo. And I would have rather just like enjoyed my journey along the way. And like, I enjoyed the photos I just took like on the journey, getting to that other spot way more. Cause I was like, well, I'm doing this for me, you know? Um, yeah. And that's why like I deleted my first Instagram account. Like I had an Instagram account with a uh, five figure following and like it had a lot of traction, a lot of movement. And mm -hmm. I just deleted it because I was just like I hated the person I was when I was building that account because I was doing it for clout. I was doing it to do it. I wasn't no, I sorry, I wasn't doing it to do it. I was doing it for the sake of getting likes and followers. That's all I cared about. And it was so toxic. Um and I hate yeah, myself. I think that's a hard relationship for sure. And a lot of people do it. A lot of people do it. Um, yeah for sure but you teach their own right i'm not here to shame anyone in any any regard um but i do challenge them to think think deeply about what they're doing and ask a very basic question which is um do you believe you're genuinely happy and i'm actually curious do, do you petra believe you are genuinely happy right now um i think I'm, i have a very high level of contentment in life right now which has been a really fun experience um, I've definitely always been one of those people who like leans towards like being very joyful or excited about things in life. Um, and I just like bless my genetics for that type of brain. Totally. Yeah. But, um, and I guess my upbringing too, just like, like my grandma is like one of the biggest, um, inspirers I would say to me in terms of how she interacts with the world. Um, and I think it's, it's just like so important to look at each day and, and like really, be very thoughtful about how you choose to show up and interact with people because I think that that like really creates who you are on the inside too um when you have that level of authenticity and integrity with yourself um I think that that breeds like a lot more inner peace which I think is like maybe the true goal like we're we're going for for like true self-actualization you know at least that's like where I want to be in life that that level of enlightenment where you also can you know it's it's i think is we keep putting naval and i literally just recorded an ama podcast before this he's and so good naval. <laughs> he is he is so good and i have and i'll i'll link some episodes below but i think his two episodes of tim ferris um it'll take you there i think they're five hours combined for both of them it is going to take you 50, 50, 50 hours to to understand them because there are so many mic drop moments and he even says this himself he's like a good book is a book I read a page at a time and I think about that page for a few days and go back to the book. Um, and that's a good book. Yeah. Um, and that's why like I used to track the number of pages read and like the number of minutes I spent reading. And it's just such a toxic thing to do. 
Um, because like the point isn't that the point is to take in information. And if I read five books a year, but I am learning so much and thinking along the way, and I, that means in my life, I'm only reading like a couple hundred books, but I learn much from them, then great. Who cares? Right. Um, yeah. It's it, like the process versus the result. For sure. And like, I, I'm, I'm going to shit on my dad for a second and like the, the, the most <laughs> like positive, fun, loving way possible, but he's in a book club. Um, and he's been in it for years with his wife and they read books, but, and I'll always ask like, what are you guys reading? And they just read the book so blindly. They can't more than half the time. They can't even remember what the title of the book is. They don't even remember who the author is. They don't even remember most of the story. They're just like, yeah, I, I remember feeling okay about it, which is like what they say more than half the time. And I'm like, what's, what's the point of that? Um, yeah, I, I don't, I don't get that personally. Um, like I can tell you the seven books I'm reading right now. Cause I flop around like a serial killer. Cause I just can't read one book at a time. Um, <laughs> that's hilarious. but everyone's different, right? Like everyone learns and that's just my hyper ADHD OCD, you know, like I just like that control. Um, yeah, for sure. Uh, I think, do you have any books recently that you've read that you'd recommend? Oh my gosh. Yeah. I've really enjoyed, um, there's a book called the awakened brain, um and a phd wrote it at least similar it's about like the science of spirituality i think that was something for me like my family was so science-based and we had family members that were religious like outside of my direct family like just on both my my mostly my dad's side um and even as kids we'd have like little religious debates about our beliefs which i think was pretty <laughs> awesome and has definitely like made who i am today that's lovely and in terms of communicating people yeah i, I like love chatting with people who have like an opposite set of beliefs hmm. and like being curious about why because I think it's like For so sure. important in understanding the world in a, in a little bit more of a broad way yeah um and so yeah we used to have like little religious debates but I think like reading that book made me feel so much more grounded in like what is happening in the neuroscience of our brain when we're having like a spiritual experience and then I think that opened up like a lot more curiosity and vulnerability there for me and like I stopped having that like stonewall effect of being like wow this feels like you know an out-of-body experience or like a next level experience or like what's what's the science of making this happen it's like I don't know your brain's just like able to connect in in some ways that I think we're still figuring out exactly what that is but she, she does a really amazing. good job breaking that down yeah. I'm, I'm stoked and, and that's and religion's a fun topic for me to talk about with friends as well because like the way I find spirituality, like I found higher levels of spirituality and meditation than I ever have from any kind of deity or belief system or church gathering. Um, but I have friends who are the yeah. opposite, you know? So like, it's just, I, like I said, I'm not here to tell someone they're wrong. Um, but I am here to tell people they're wrong if they believe that only their way is the way. Um, which I think is the second part of that that not many people say. Like I'd be very quick to shoot people down that are like, oh, there's only one God or one system or one belief. It's like, no. There's not, um, but good for you. For yeah, whatever whatever <laughs> brings you the most meaning is like what matters. Yes, to me, you know? it's it's not even joy. Um, it's sometimes sometimes the best thing for you isn't what brings you the most joy. It's what brings you the most amount of peace. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, which is pretty deep, I guess. <laughs> I didn't even think, I just I just realized that in my own important. Head. Sorry, I'm just like trying to think about the next question to ask. No, I love also it. about I that. Um, so. Great books um any like are you a have you read of altered movie? traits uh, Alter what 
Did you read Altered Traits? Altered Traits. It's like a, a book on the science of meditation and um, okay. how it affects, I think it's like your mind, brain, and body. But it's super interesting. It like totally reduces gray matter, et cetera. Hmm. Um, they did, I like, gotta say of... to, to the audience, like, uh, and I know I'm inter- interrupting you again, and I apologize, but like, the problem with doing this podcast is I get recommended so many good books, and I want to read all of them. And like I said, <laughs> I don't read that many books because I want to enjoy them and process them. So like, I want to be, I want to force myself on like, Rob, you need to read at least an hour a day. But also the other part of me is like, that defeats the point of reading. You know, so, like, this is my constant. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I'm, I'm like quantum in that state. Like, I'm I'm either for the reading goal or I'm like, just read when you want, man. Um, but, so, but sorry, you were saying Awakened Traits is about changing, uh, like, the different uh, uh, inputs. Yeah, it's altered traits. It basically talks about, like, um, all the original research they did, like, on monks versus, like, people meditating and, like, all of the brain scans etc and then it also has like it it's just talking about like how meditation affects your brain body and um mind i think is what they say in the, wow. in the tagline yeah that's also awesome. a good one yeah definitely adding that i did this. like a lot of yeah i did a lot of work with the at nike there was like this meditation community that my friend julia started it so i was like pretty heavily involved in that when i was at nike as well and i think that's like it's amazing moving to the city for me was so hectic like uh just like seeing homeless people everywhere and like just seeing that a level of struggle and kind of like disconnection. Yeah. Especially in like drug and alcohol use. Yeah. yeah. It was really hard for me. So um, I definitely like had to meditate when I was there. I felt like almost every day and um, that created like a pretty, pretty good mental floss, you know? Yeah. I love that. Um, any TV shows or movies you've watched? I don't know if you you, you watch them or not. Um, something different, but like anything you've watched or consumed recently that you really enjoyed? Um, I mean, Lord of the Rings. The new. So, <laughs> I think there's a different name for it, actually. But so I don't most people I've talked to hated it. So you saying you like really? It. Yeah. I mean, I just like nostalgically like Lord of the Rings, so I Got think it. that's why I'm like okay with it. I did not like the orcs. They're like super rat yeah. and creepy vibes. Okay um some of my list yeah. of things to watch so i will i will get to it. i don't know um, i'm not a huge uh fantastic fun guy is good that that hmm. movie i liked <laughs> okay i will i will add it i mean i, I i'm i'm big i'm not a big tv show guy um like i'd literally rather some people want to watch every new netflix every new peacock every new whatever the streaming service is called show that comes out and like yeah. they'll literally watch a few episodes a night i'm the person that'll watch a lot of movies and then like parks and rec four times a year just on repeat like i don't know it's just kind hilarious of like, that's just, so cause, funny because because to me it's like uh, sometimes the most productive mode i have is putting on tv or a movie that i know very well in the background and just working through it and that just gives my mind something to focus on um and i thought i was crazy and so i convinced myself it was bad i had a girlfriend actually a couple years ago that was telling me that like i'll be so much more productive without that and then literally <laughs> like that same week, I was listening to a podcast uh, one from Tim Ferriss on the Tim Ferriss show. And he was talking about how while writing the four hour work week, he would watch um, James Bond, Casino Royale and repeat. And that was like his movie that he just kept to keep his mind and his thoughts flowing. And that he's like, you got to find what works for you. And then so nowadays, like I have a few yeah, movies totally. that I'll put on and just rewatch. Um, my, my version of Casino Royale has been um, Forgetting Sarah Marshall, unrated. Uh, which is just an Love amazing it. movie. Um, so anyone hasn't seen it, it's a fantastic film. Uh, you oh know, you, you have Jason, uh, B- Jason Siegel and uh, Kristen Bell and Mila Kunis 
and Russell Brand. It's just and uh, Jonah Hill. It's just fun. At, uh, and then yeah, it's a fun cast of of people. But um, going off that and uh, kind of wrapping this conversation up, um, I'm gonna kind of run by you a few uh rapid fire questions uh, you can answer these in as few or many words um as you like and they'll also probably spin off some other conversations um the first one a bit cliche i but i like the way it kind of is answered is uh if you had a billion dollars that you couldn't spend on yourself or other people you knew um what problem would you try or attempt to solve oh um I think something that I've been really passionate about lately is uh, like our energy systems, because I mm. feel like we're creating this new technology, like especially in transportation that isn't supported right now by actual renewables. So definitely something like that, um, water purification, like getting clean water to people, definitely like a resource heavy lift to just equalize the playing field a little bit in the world. Yeah, I love that. Would you have any kind of initial first steps you would want to, like anything you'd want to kind of chase? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, I mean, I think something that I've been really curious about is like uh, using solar power and microgrids. Mm. And there's yeah. like so much new development, I would say, in like perovskite crystals, et cetera. So mm -hmm. I, I would love to see that expand um, and just make that like an application that we could put on surfaces, i.e. windows that already yeah. exists so that it's like way lower impact and yet allows us to drive um, power generation. And most people don't know this, but like the the modern solar cell, the one that you see in like uh, even the newest solar roofs, uh, we're at like the, we're at like the 1940s of the car compared to like where we could be. Like we, we have so much yeah, to totally. go in terms of efficiency. And so I always tell people and they're blown away by this fact, but you could cover 20% of the Sahara desert in modern day technology panels. Um, and it would power the entire planet. Um, yeah, and so like Texas, I think too. state of Texas. Yeah. Same, same kind of sp span of area, yeah. which is just insane. People are like, Oh, cover the state of Texas, cover the United States. I'm like, no, no, no power the entire world. Like you could only cover 10% yeah, of Texas. It's insane. it's insane. So, you know, I, I get really excited. Um, I just recently got involved with a company that's helping turn, um, long story short without getting into too many like nda level areas like turning food waste <laughs> into fuel um through existing processes that already exist um and people are like oh that sounds nifty but it's not real it's real it exists there's not enough money on it yet to make it happen and i think that's the next that's one of the next echelons i'm really excited to be part of which is like there is so much value in our trash um yeah and totally. we just start pulling it uh, but in the conversation another day, I could talk for hours about that. Um, is there a story that your family, parents like to tell about you? Oh my gosh. Uh, that's a hard one. I mean, I feel like I did all sorts of silly things as, as a kid. Like we all did, I definitely so was not shy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I would like, uh, I'm trying to think if there's like a particularly great one. We were visiting our family in Norway and it was like this family of three boys and then my sister and I and we like do crazy things like I think there's at least 20 photos of us standing on top of like the car or like a roof or like <laughs> you know we just like do anything to climb or like wrestle with each other and stuff like that and that was like a really joyful like moment in my life I think I was always like pretty high energy and um stoked on on being engaged and and like seeing getting to the top of things to see the view <laughs> I love that 
I love that so much. Um, so you were the kid that was like always climbing the next thing and there's parents who were like, honey, get down, honey, <laughs> honey. Um, yeah, I definitely was the kid who would like go out into a public situation and my mom would be like, where did your clothes go? Like, what happened? <laughs> that was me too. You're so wild it's okay. right now. <laughs> yeah, it's just like, Rob, you had pants on like two seconds ago. Pure where did comfort, they get? you know? Um, yeah. That's why if anyone's seen Parks and Rec, like I, I ascribe to, to the character that is Andy Dwyer very well of this just like always, always being a kid. My sister's the same way. So my sister like, we never really got along as as kids because it was just two of us. Um, I mean, we fought yeah. a lot, but we were still friends. Like at the end of the day, and we're good friends now. Um, but she did her whole, like when she was in college, I was trying to find my career, and when I was in college, she was in high school, and so we never like we weren't the closest. But I we, we started becoming good friends when she got towards the end of college, and she did her whole, um, she and they. My sister goes by both pronouns, so I I sometimes yeah. catch myself. Um, so they did their um college uh dissertation paper she went to lewis and clark in portland actually um oh yeah, yeah and um i did it again and they did their paper on um uh the importance of play especially oh, in, yeah epic in, like at an oh, older age and making a creative and so my big thing is like i'm always been a huge lego guy and so if i'm super super stressed out um i will always have and i'm and like not many people know this, but I always have like new Lego sets chilling in a closet somewhere. Uh, and if I'm super stressed out, I literally shut everything off, put on some music and build a Lego set. Um, and that That's to awesome. me just like unlocks everything. Um, and I, and I display them. And, and the nice thing is like, cause my mind is the crazy hellscape that it is. And I remember almost everything that happened. I like, I remember the emotions I was feeling when I built certain things and I'm, and I prefer to buy the sets that are like are cool to display. Like in my room, I have like, uh, you know, me being an aerospace engineer, uh, like the uh, sp uh, you know, space shuttle, I have the Saturn V in a corner, I have the um, Star Wars Republic gunship in another corner. Um, I just That's ordered awesome. the AT-AT with like moving feet that I'm stoked to build. It's like it's like 8,000 pieces. It was $800 and like I, I know it's Damn, crazy, what? but also Investments. like... <laughs> yeah, but the but but similarly to to sneakers, like there is such a market for secondhand, not even not even secondhand, brand new sealed and secondhand toys, trading cards, Pokemon, yeah. Yu-Gi-Oh. Um, there's this new trading card game that just launched on Kickstarter today. Um, I don't know the people that run it, I'll but I'll give them a shameless plug. It's called Life TCG, and it's a trading card game um, that's all about the mammals on this planet and um oh that's cool the coolest thing about it is that they uh so it's pretty common in trading cards where like you'll have like a first edition and like a second edition maybe like a limited edition and that's basically just like mm -hmm. the first edition is like maybe they'll print a thousand uh a thousand booster boxes so maybe like i don't know how those like enough cards where it's limited on like a global scale um so they're becoming rare and people want to collect them and they want the first edition stamp but they're actually interesting because they're putting different editions in the same set so you have you'll have first edition holofoil like super rare ones and first edition and second edition in the same pack of cards and it's all based on how many of the species exist still in the world i was gonna say endangered yeah. species and yes stuff. so 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 the coolest thing is like take the silverback gorilla there's only about a thousand left in existence so there's only a thousand of these holofoil like and they're beautiful illustrations there's only a thousand of the holofoil cards that'll ever exist um yeah, and which is awesome. super cool. So, so basically they're creating rarity while also um, 
like awareness, awareness. And, and, and like a lot of their proceeds go to different, um, causes of, of like conservation. Um, but the coolest, the coolest thing about the entire thing, which I think is the reason why they're becoming popular is, uh, there is one earth card, um, like literally they're printing one single hollow foil earth card because they're like, there's one planet. That's all we got. And it's randomly inside one of the first few booster packs. Um, so it'd be really interesting. I hope I, I really, so I, part of me hopes a collector gets it, um, and gets it graded and keeps it. And that's something that we can all kind of like hold on. But I really also hope that like some kid gets it for Christmas and opens it and like shreds it in the laundry basket. Like, you know, I, 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 I no. love, you know, what I'm saying about it. Yeah. But I just think it's, I, I, I supported them. Um, you know, they went live today. Uh, they already got, I think they're at 150% of their goal and they launched three hours ago. Um, so feel free to do it. I think as a, also an investment perspective from a collector's perspective, it's not a bad, not a bad gig. Um, yeah gamifying like our resource usage totally and and i mean that could be helpful (laughs) it could could be helpful because games games resonate but my last little foray is like i got completely out of the market during covid uh in terms of uh like retail investing for fun uh like a lot of people in our generation did and i put all that money into collectibles and it's done very well so i tell everyone to just look if 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 there's something you like there's probably an investment route for you um, and if you like nothing, you probably at least like yourself and invest in yourself. So, uh, yeah, if it's trading cards, if it's, uh, you know, I think nostalgia sells. And I think we're going to see that, especially Gen Z millennials, as people get older and get more money, like people are going to want versions of the trading cards they used to have. People are going to want like, uh, mint versions of the Beanie Babies they loved as a kid, you know, like those things will sell. And I'm not saying it's everything, but I think it's an interesting I know that we've been on a tangent now, but uh, yeah. So any, anyone's interested in that, check it out. Live TCG and looking at their awesome. page right now. Yeah, it's it's super cool. I mean, I, I think it's it's such an obvious idea of like making these as rare cards that. Yeah, uh, totally. Just like making it apparent the situation too to people on an understandable level. It's, it's really cool. Yeah, but you know, I that's and that's what I wish. I wish Nike did more of like, and you and I can speak to this very well. I think it's like, I love they did with the Dior Jordans. They numbered them. Um, and it definitely probably added an expense in the production process, but yeah, I love this idea of like some people will wear them and trash them and they'll just maybe just go to landfill. Maybe they'll be recycled. Um, I'd love to be that person that uses my Dior's and wears them down to the ground. And then one day just drops them off at a Nike store to be recycled. Uh, and I'm sure they won't ever make it to recycling. I'm sure someone along the way will just grab them and put them on a shelf. Um, <laughs> but someone will throw them out at one point. And I love that. And I love that, that like, you know, it reminds people that like, if, if, uh, if that's what it takes for people to, to, to kind of get this through their minds, um, I think it's important, sadly. Um, but that's why I love how there's, you know, um, like they they said in this in this first life TCG, there's 155 unique cards, um, mm-hmm. 54 first edition hollows, 26 second edition rares, and 72 second edition commons. Um, but the most fascinating to me is the simple fact that like there there's one of these one cards. Like, could you? It's basically the equivalent of saying like back in the day with Pokemon, they were going to print one first edition Charizard holographic card. Like, I. It couldn't even imagine what that would turn into. Um, 
but it probably wouldn't have been it probably wouldn't have been as popular of a character because no one would have known about it or best people would have been, had access to it so there's like i understand what they're doing and i love that but i really hope it like you know this becomes a popular game among kids in the future and the original earth card is unearthed and makes its way into like the smithsonian as like a as like a token to what we're doing um yeah and hopefully that's those animal populations hopefully sure. the, the mammal populations like grow so they can produce more versus yeah and i I'd, inaccurate representation in the game <laughs> and i'd love it if if they actually could like the game will every 10 years kind of reassess and maybe release some more cards if if they go up um that'd be really cool um yeah. but it also take away from the the value of the cards okay so that was a fun tangent um is uh <laughs> if if you could and this is a modification on um a question that Tim Ferriss likes to ask and I shamefully uh, repurposed it um but if you could send a single push notification to everyone's phone in a given area where would it be and what would it say? Oh my gosh. So location dependence. Yeah, and you're allowed to, you're allowed to cop out and see the entire universe, the entire world. Like I'll give that one to you. Uh, but, okay, okay. But uh I mean, I think like one earth, one people or something like that. You know what I mean? To like unify mm -hmm. people. And you would <laughs> and you would do it. So you would send it to everyone every single phone yeah i think so i think it's just like we need that reminder constantly you know like we're not living that way right now no sadly um we are still struggling for resources uh, we should yeah, um, yeah. The there are, there's enough conflict. there's abundance but <laughs> right now there's abundance um we're just not using them well yeah um it'll be just to see what happens um but that is the direction um we all try to do so uh, do you have any last requests or imparting advice or recommendations for anyone listening? Um, anything you want to add? I mean, I feel like, I think it's, it's been super awesome chatting with you. And I, I think like we touched on a lot of different things, but I, I think like what's important to me is like, I love these deep conversations with people I love like showing up in authenticity and I, I really appreciate you building space for that. Thank you so much. Um, I yeah. will uh, connect with you right after you stop recording. Um, and uh, as always, uh, you guys can find uh, all the things we talked about linked below as promised. Um, and I hope you guys all have a good rest of your day. I hope you all enjoyed this conversation between myself and Petra Knapp. As always, you can find Petra online at Petra Knapp. That's P-E-T-R-A-K-N-A-P-P, -P, as well as linked below. And you can always find me online at Rob Auchincloss. I hope you all have a fantastic rest of your day. And I hope you all stay sane. I mean that. Goodbye. I love you.